been reading books about magic of the serious kind, not not the rabbit kind of magic, since I was a little boy. The whole reason I got into film, um, I've told this story a million times, but I was working on a painting of a garden at night, and the plants in the dark night painting began to move, and I heard a wind. And, and I, I thought, oh, um, this is interesting. Welcome to another episode of Ritual Light and Sound. I'm your host, Evan Dean Shelton, and I'm here with my Twitter pal, Kim, who also uh, goes by the Twitter handle Miss Serling nowadays. Kim, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on. Ah, it's my pleasure. So, uh, Kim is here to talk to me this evening about Richard Stanley's The Color Out of Space, the most recent film adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft short story of the same name. First off, what are your overall impressions of The Color Out of the Space? What stood out for you? What did you take home from it after watching it for the first time? I really loved it. Um, the very first time I watched it, it was kind of mind-blowing. Like one of those, you have to take it all in and think about it for a bit afterwards. Um, but after a second and third viewing, it's just a really, really beautiful film. Let's see. Standouts. The color. The color choice. Um, like the magenta and the purples and blues that they use. The fact that the movie throughout certain points just looks like an overall painting um, is just amazing. I like that it's a setup of a story where it's just dread, I guess, that you're anticipating. Like if you're familiar with the story by H.P. Lovecraft before going into the film, you know like nothing good is about to happen to any of the people you're about to meet. And it has that just creeping tone throughout the whole movie that like sits in your gut. So um, that's something I really loved about this one that had it stand out from others. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not to, uh, I, I know you probably have more, but let me let me dig into that one with you since you've mentioned it. I think because of its tone, I think it carries the, the Lovecraftian horror feel into cinema better than any movie before there's some movies that come close you know in the mouth of madness always comes to mind uh with that that bleak dread but as far as direct lovecraft adaptations go a lot of us tend to fall back on Stuart gordon's right a lot of us sort of look to Stuart gordon as the the greatest adapter of lovecraft to the screen that's probably because he's done the most of them as compared to anybody else right like he's done more yeah. of those stories to film or to, to, you know. And his are the, the most high profile, you know, um, because like for me personally, my, my favorite Lovecraft adaptation prior to the color out of space, because I, I think I got to fucking give the crown to color out of space now. But um, the HP Lovecraft historical film society did a silent film version of the call of Cthulhu. That is fucking okay. amazing. It is so good. It's a, direct perfect adaptation and it was done entirely with film techniques that only would have been available during Lovecraft's time 
So you got stop motion animation and forced perspective and, and sets and stuff. It's really fucking cool. Uh, but back to Gordon. So most people look to Gordon, right? But and, and me too. Like I love Stuart Gordon's adaptations, but he always manages to, even in like his grimmest adaptations, which to me are like uh, Dreams in the Witch House and Castle Freak, mm-hmm. his darkest. Mm-hmm. The other ones like have overt humor in them. Like Reanimator's pretty goofy from start to finish. Uh, and yeah. I fucking I love it. I love it. But you know nothing about Lovecraft is ever goofy, and it kind of it detracts no. from that overall vibe. But like Castle Freak and Dreams in the Witch House are pretty straightforward, fucking bleak, uh, Lovecraftian horror. But still, they have their moments of like inadvertent hilarity through some cheese you know um or whatever but this one richard stanley's the color out of space is the first modern lovecraft film adaptation that for me just brings the tone from start to finish there's never any let up there's nothing thrown in for relief it's just bleak fucking cosmic horror I'm going to agree with you there on that one, too, because even the only thing that you would think might be able to derail a mood like that in this film would be a Nick Cage performance if he went a certain way. But the more that I watch it, even when Nick Cage is being Nick Cage, it doesn't derail the mood at all. You're still just with that family like, okay, you know what? No, like this is fucking grim. These people are losing their minds like this works. This fucking works. So credit to him on that one. I thought the yeah. whole cast was pretty damn great. For sure, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, um, Richard Stanley recognized that. He he knew what he was doing. He didn't just cast Nick Cage for, like, the star pop. You know, he knew that the Nick Cage thing was going to work in this. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen an interview where Stanley says that uh, when they got together for pre-production for doing notes and, and working on the script together, that Nick Cage... Nick Cave, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> that's the movie I wanted. The Color Out of Space, starring Nick Cave. But uh, Nick Cage Even told darker. him, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Nick Cage <laughs> told him he was like, uh, "I'm, I'm gonna go for a really subdued performance in this film, you know, compared to what people expect from me." But there are two places in the script where I really want to push probably what people think of as the Nick Cagey thing. And that is the, the part where he realizes that all the tomatoes that he grew are bad and he just mm-hmm. goes ape shit, throws them <laughs> in the trash can like he's slam dunking. And he like improv half of those lines. And then when he goes ape shit in the car when it won't crank and he's just punching the roof and punching the steering wheel and stuff. Those are yeah. the two points where he was like, I'm going to let loose the Nick Cage fully and it comes through it definitely comes through yeah and it works it works and his like general man weirdness just sort of adds like you said i pick up something different every time i watch it and i think tonight was my fourth fourth or fifth time watching color out of space nice tonight was my third oh cool um some subtleties <laughs> that he's just killing i mean you know so some of it i'm sure was on paper but like uh how Right off the bat, he's the only one who the meteorite really, really stinks to him. It has this terrible odor. And then after mm-hmm. you've seen it one time and you go back up for a rewatch, you realize that he's smelling the cancer ward where his dad died. 
and it's like that fucks his head up immediately like he as soon as he smells that like he goes in the house and pours that drink and the wife is like well our son is acting strange and this is how you deal with this or whatever and he's like yeah well Mm-hmm. what do you want me to do or whatever but but if you've seen it once and, and he says something like considering the circumstances right yeah there's a lot more going on with him than just their kid and just the weird smell you know and then you can mm-hmm. notice how he starts he starts sliding into that like voice of his father every now and then mm-hmm. and like the, the first time i watched it i was like man nick cage's accent is all over the place in this movie he's like sometimes he sounds like woody allen and sometimes he's the guy he is for the rest of the movie i don't get it but then second time through i was like oh right he's like he is his dad when he drops into that weird mm-hmm. voice and man it's just really well done like the more you watch it the more you pick up on the dynamic the up and down of how he slides in and out of thinking about his dad and acting like his dad every now and then and stuff it's, it's really interesting mm-hmm. i think it's um like he fucking killed his performance with it yeah i think he did great i think he did really good not too over the top not too downplayed fit the movie just right yeah <clears throat> um yeah so back to your your things that stood out for you you know i have such jumbled notes all over the place because after a while i didn't want to lose any of the random things that popped into my head i think the color palette that they chose to go with because i had to know i wasn't sure and i had not read color out of space as the actual um lovecraft story before seeing the movie so i was like i wonder if they named the color choice in the story like it's a red or a purple or a magenta or whatever and when i read the story they're very vague about that they call it you know um a color that's unknown to our eye or, or something along those lines and a couple different variations of that so i thought it was pretty cool to go with the choice of like okay for something alien and invasive we're going with this bright magenta and purples and blues i i, I love that a lot about this movie yeah yeah that's interesting too man because i think that um like there's a lot of fan artwork for the color out of space and i feel like a a lot of us fans of the story sort of think of magenta i guess you know i don't um it's kind of an odd thing like when this the promos for this movie first hit i was like yeah that's what it should look like that that's exactly what it looked like in my head and has for years Uh and richard stanley just and i feel like all of us kind of imagined something vaguely purplish or pinkish i don't know why i mean was it that way for you did you read it before you saw it no no that's the thing so i think it's interesting too that in another lovecraft adaptation that you know wasn't even done by the same people but the the Gordon's version of From Beyond that he also heavily used a magenta color and I immediately connected that I was like huh two different filmmakers stories by Lovecraft both choosing to go with that you know neon tone purpley magenta I think that's pretty fucking cool that it's like almost a universally agreed unspoken thing that like the the color's magenta we've just decided this (laughs) right yeah I feel like Stanley was probably given a nod to Stuart Gordon with the color choices, maybe, maybe, um, but maybe Stuart Gordon was thinking about his idea of the color out of space when he was coloring from beyond. I, I've always thought that that is exactly what happened with from beyond because the first time I saw from yeah. beyond, it just made me think I color out of space a lot. So, okay. 
Okay. Because I had that same connection, but the other way, since I had seen the films first before reading the stories, I watched Color Out of Space and immediately was reminded of From Beyond. Like, oh, okay, cool. Same colors. I see you. Right. Cool. Yeah. Um, I know he definitely was given a nod to, um, there's a a classic pulp illustrator. His name was Virgil Finlay. And Virgil Finlay was a fucking master. He's a brilliant artist. And he had... Um, a really popular it's, it's black and white his color out of space illustration but uh stanley made his uh like the cg rendering of when the color out of space is sort of uh, spewing out of that well and into the sky in that like tornado looking thing you mm. know it's like this sort of cyclone of light that's stretching into the sky that's a hundred percent what yeah. virgil finlay's illustration like. <clears throat> it even has like the exact same curvature of the bins in it so i'm sure he was he was given a nod to virgil finlay so he may also have you know went with magenta as a direct sort of uh like a love letter to Stuart gordon that's pretty cool i love that like whether we know for sure or not regardless that's that's pretty cool if that's what he was doing um yes it did anything else in your notes you wanted to bring up that that stood out for you no i think we'll get into more of the the beefy of that um as we continue on um Cool. So uh, next up, the, the thing I always like to ask people is, you know, as a horror film, did you find this one effectively frightening or scary or disturbing? So in a way, yes. And um, for me, I'm weird with horror films, particularly now, because I think I'm so desensitized to them from watching them from a really young age. But um, I have to think about scary in the viewpoint of now like jump scares don't do it for me i usually don't get actually like physically frightened or nervous while watching a film or uncomfortable where i have to turn it off but this film's effectively frightening in a way where if you actually take the moment to consciously put yourself in these people's shoes and experience what they're experiencing throughout this story that's unfolding before you like yeah this film's fucking frightening you imagine your downfall just being so out of your own hands like, this shit's happening, that's it, you're losing your mind, your family's losing their minds around you, and, you know, uh, doom, just doom, like, yeah, that's terrifying. And I think the, um, like, the the runtime and the pacing of the film does a great job of, of translating that to the screen from the page, so the, the story really isn't that long, I think the story's only... I was like 15-ish pages or something, you know, like most love. I want to say it's 15 to 20 pages, yeah. The body horror aspects in this one, too, that, that's pretty troubling. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, the deal with adapting anything to the screen is that uh, with books, books don't adapt very well to the screen because there's so much going on. Um, books are not like movies, mm -hmm. not at all. But short stories are a lot more like movies than a novel. And uh, but something about like uh, the, the story has a kind of plotting pace. Like you you are aware of things going very, very wrong in the background. But uh, in, mm -hmm. the, in the foreground, the characters really aren't getting it, you know, and they're sort of just going about their daily lives on the farm. And you, the reader, are like, oh, God, here it comes. And the, the movie's pacing translates that so well because 
like things are bonkers weird right off the bat and they like don't even notice <laughs> right yeah yeah but it's like a it's well done in the way that like all horror movies or so many horror movies hinge on that like things are terrible at your house and you know damn well you shouldn't be here anymore but you're still here because if you weren't here there wouldn't be a fucking movie mm-hmm. but like this story really gives a, a better reason for them to deal with things the way that they do you know because um not only are things like slow and subtle at the beginning but then you get like the the time the like temporal distortion that's happening at their house and that's something that mm-hmm. the more I watch it, the more I realize it happens sooner than you think. That time gets weird uh, pretty quick. Yes. That's something I noticed um, on this third viewing. The audio, that high-pitched, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? That high-pitched frequency sound starts showing up the second that meteor hits. If you listen to the background, every now and again, you get like that little high-pitched whistling. I didn't notice that the first time I watched it. I thought maybe I was imagining it or something, but this time it stands out. Like everything just slowly starts falling apart the second that meteor hits. Yeah, and like, um, you know, that was maybe one of the things my first time through watching it, I was kind of like, all right, well, you know, it's it's got a bit of that classic haunted house family horror movie thing where they had plenty of chances to leave and they, they didn't for the sake of the movie, but you know, whatever it was fucking brilliant. And I loved it. But the more I watch it, the more I'm like, no, it's fucking superbly crafted. And there really aren't any moments for escape. No, they're all just pawns at that point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like Lavinia could possibly have escaped after she like carves the sigils into herself for protection and the mm-hmm. the color sort of leaves her alone for a little while, like she could possibly have left maybe, but she drank the water already, you know? So may- maybe, maybe she didn't have a choice anyway. Yeah. I think she had maybe the strongest resistance to the appeal of the color, whatever it is that it did to the individuals to keep them in their routines and keep them trapped there. She definitely had more of a resistance to it than the others. But again, like you said, it it got into the water, everything around it, the, you know, the earth, the plants were affected by it. They're drinking the water. They're affected by it. Like just that whole um, biome and area, nothing that could be done the second that meteor hit. Like it just sept it, uh, you know, seeped into the ground, seeped into everything around it and just started sucking the life out of everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's sort of um, from from Richard Stanley's standpoint as a, a practitioner, as much as I can understand, Richard Stanley is a, an occult practitioner of some decades, uh, maybe even, you know, mm-hmm. at this point, what you would say a lifelong practitioner. The, the guy's decades deep into his practice and quite knowledgeable. But uh, so I guarantee that he approached it with the mentality that that I'm picking up from my viewings, which is that um, what you just said highlights it. So she, she did have some resistance against what's, what was going on there. Right. And that's probably because Mm -hmm. of her, her occult practice, probably because she had sigilized herself and uh, performed banishing rituals and, and she was protected on some level, but on another level, biology is biology and it's inescapable. And she drank the fucking water. So she was done, you know, Mm -hmm. no, 
no ritual was going to save her because she she drank the water and um and as a practitioner richard stanley understands what we all do which is that you know you're not gonna you're not gonna pray your headache away right without the aspirin too you know what i mean like you, you gotta act and think you have to you got to vibrate your intention into the world and you got to actually act on your intention you can't just sit and think so you know you mm-hmm. sit and think and then you fucking perform action to bring your intention into the world and and that that reinforces our you know a concept that's put to great use in science fiction and horror films which is that like technology or rather magic is just technology that we do not understand. Right. So like something from another world shows up and it seems like absolute, you know, supernatural to us, but it's just tech that we don't get. And um, so as, as much as the color may have seemed to be some spiritual entity that showed up uh, as a result of Lavinia's summoning or whatever, uh, you know, on one level that, that may be true, but on another level, it is a creature it's it's a living entity that has its own physiology and biology and psychology that are alien to us and that we don't understand and you fucking can't you know you can't fight biology with magic and she drank right. the water um and so i think that's a cool i think that's richard stanley talking that in there purposefully he's like yeah magic is is real and it's effective but you can't fucking pray your headache away I think he solidified that with the ending too, where she just, you know, um, what was his name? Ward, you know, kept trying to get her to escape with him. And she's just like, no, like I live here. That was her acceptance. Like, this is it. This is what's happening. And then just disintegrates into the color and merges with the color. Um, That's that acceptance of like, well, you know, my actions got me to where I am and this is the consequences. Poof. (laughs) This is what I must do now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, right. So the, the, the creeping, un- inescapable dread and uh, like the disintegration of family and all of those things are effectively frightening to you or disturbing or, or scary, whatever word you would use for it. Right. Absolutely. And then there's always the good, you know, um, good old body horror and transformation type stuff that I find um, profoundly disturbing. So there's always um, the alpacas, what ended up happening to those alpacas and then the merging of the mother and her son. Like that's a horrific thought. Like your body just m- melts into something else and you're no longer in control and just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to, I, th- I think I'm going to save that for my like block of weird shit that I want to talk about. So, but, uh, but we'll circle back to that alpaca right shit in a minute. <laughs> I did think of something that actually stood out that I should have pointed out before triangles, triangles popped up quite um, a few times. Now it was, it was the same ones over and over. I, I tried to pay attention to that um, this time around, but still showing the triangle in multiple situations all throughout the movie, I thought was very interesting and definitely deliberately done a couple of things i was able to like connect that to so correct me if i'm wrong um but the triangle in alchemy that represents fire right yes just like the plane you know the as you see it standing upright triangle that's fire so i found it interesting with that because the thing they say about the color you know oh you know it's beautiful it's just a color but it burns 
I thought that was kind of cool. And then in spirituality, the triangle is supposed to represent uh, the union of body, mind, and spirit. You know, this whole film, you're just watching these people dissolve into one (laughs) sort of entity. So I thought that was pretty intriguing, too. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, after checking my notes, I see that the next thing I, I would have asked, according to my list, is getting into the weird shit. So you fucking perfectly segued us already. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, first off, let me ask you, uh, are there any specific triangles that you can recall? Like, uh, maybe rattle off a few that come to mind, like some specific triangles that you remember seeing in, in certain frames. So... Um, the first one I noticed was her hair clip, uh, Lavinia's hair clip. That's a triangle. And then, um, their window upstairs in the attic was the next one I noticed, which I kind of felt like every time they showed that particular window, you were seeing a different view of it. I don't know if that's something I'm reading too deeply into, but I almost feel like every time you see it, it was at a different angle. So you got like a different dimension of it. That was kind of intriguing. And then the one other one I noticed wasn't just a triangle. It was in their um, bedroom. The ceiling had a triangle, you know, point to it, but the walls itself kind of reminded me of the way angles connect in the wall from um, Dreams in a Witch House. That was like that weird, perfectly uh, positioned angle. I I forget how to describe it, but that like opened that dimension for that witch in that story. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. It reminded me so much of that room that he stayed in. The same, same angle, same walls. Cool, yeah. I'm, I'm sure he was, uh, I'm sure that was in mind for Richard Stanley as he was doing all of this. Okay, so uh, so something I made note to mention was um, her hairpin, right? Lavinia's hairpin. Mm-hmm. Not only is it like pretty prominently framed so that you won't miss it, but her, she has like these purple streaks in her hair that, the way that mm-hmm. she's wearing the hairpin, the way that it gathers her hair, the the purple streaks in her hair all sort of like emanate from the bottom of the triangle outward, almost like tentacles okay. or uh, those tendrils of light that come off of the color when it's coming out of the well. Oh, I didn't even make that connection. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, d- I didn't see it until just today. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, the way her, her purple streaks are laying, it totally looks like like Lovecraftian tentacles coming out of some yeah, yeah yeah so the and that's interesting the way that you said the and i can recall some of that the how the the window in their bedroom is um it does seem like you keep getting different angles on it and it has like this really big wide sill on it which does quite dramatically change the shape of it depending on what angle you're looking at and mm-hmm. i i highly doubt that was just inadvertent i i'm sure that that was a, a part of what no, was there, there had to be a reason for that i just don't know what it is <laughs> yeah yeah stanley he's brilliant and so back to your your discussion of like the the elemental alchemical occult connotations of of fire the element one of the properties of fire is is change is transformation yes you know if uh if air the element air sort of represents the um like the neutrality of something that's malleable, something that that is not necessarily in a state of change, but something that's like in a state where it can easily change, right? Like air is sort of the uh, the limbo, like wishy-washy element. But fire, fire mm. represents the destruction that causes the change. Fire often mm. represents death. 
uh, or chaos. And, and both of those are just types of change, um, types of transformation. And if we look at the color out of space as a film, um, as a whole, it is certainly thematic of, of the transformative element of fire, right? Because the color out of space is some kind of, some kind of radiation, you know, some kind of um, light slash fire, some combination of the two that we can't quite understand with our earth physics. But, uh, you know, it comes down and it changes things. Um, It completely transforms the entire area that it lives in while it's feeding off its energies. And then it blasts off for parts unknown to to do it somewhere else. Again, presumably is is how this thing rolls. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so like fire is the thematic element of this movie, the color out of space. And so, yes, you see those triangles everywhere, everywhere, like visually cluing you in to the, um, thematic elements of this film. And I think that, you know, I don't know, I'm a fucking kook like Richard Stanley. So to, to people like us, that triangle is going to work on you, no matter who you are, you don't necessarily have to have any familiarity with these concepts but uh like something is translated to you through your eyeballs with that shape um and i believe that and i'm i'm certain that richard stanley believes that and uh and he demonstrated his belief in that by putting it in this film you know by by fucking making it his number one visual indicator that that is what this movie is about at its heart and soul uh, so here's some things I've made note of that I'd like to bounce off of you. Sure. So if the whole movie is is about the the transformative effect of fire and and change in general, and back to what you were saying about the alpacas earlier, so something that really jumped out for me upon this view is that that talk that they have around the dinner table right at the beginning of the movie when um, Nick Cage is like, uh, well, you know, wait till you taste that alpaca meat. And um, mm-hmm. and everybody's like, oh, gross, Dad. And he's like, what? The animal of the future, you know? And they have that, that conversation about how to use an alpaca like it's a fucking pile of Play-Doh, you know? And mm-hmm. like your fellow earthlings are just here for you to enslave and shape and uh, feed on and profit off of however you want. Life mm-hmm. is here for you to manipulate however you feel necessary is is sort of the point of that conversation that they're having. And Lavinia is kind of like, oh, gross, you know, and mom's like, oh, you think that stuff in the Big Macs isn't gross? And she's like, well, at least it's delicious. And it's just sort of this brilliant. It's like a really banal, mundane conversation that they're having about some very, very big ideas. Okay. Notably, just the idea that that life feeds on life and that that's natural and should be accepted as just part of existence. Um, And I think that Mm -hmm. conversation is a setup for the kick in the nuts that you get when the color shows up and the color manipulates life and feeds off life and exploits life in any way that it sees fit or necessary in its own natural existence, you know? And that's horrific to us uh, little hairless apes that call ourselves earthlings. But to the color, that's just, it's just living, man. It's just L-I-V-I-N. 
Yeah, the caller's looking at us the way that we were looking at, you know, a snake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And does so does that make it bad, you know? No, it doesn't. It just makes it another another thing existing and trying to live its own life. But that is like a fundamental part of Lovecraftian horror. That does make it worse. For me anyway, that makes it worse to think that um everything is the same. You know, as above, so below, as we say in the occult practice, right? Right. Uh, which is another thematic element of the Colorado space. Uh, and that's that's what their conversation is about. So in that conversation, we're talking about the below part of things. We're talking about down here on Earth, where we throw alpacas in a fence and drink their booby juice and slice <laughs> their legs off and grill them up and sell them for profit or wear their skin or whatever the fuck we want to do with them because we're in control and they're just the alpaca. But then right. uh, the above and as above, so below above is, is uh, cosmicism, you know, above is space and beyond the earth. And uh, well, you know, it just so happens that shit's exactly the same up there and beyond as it is down here. There are things yeah. out there and up there that feed on life and manipulate life just like the rest of us and it doesn't make any of us bad or or evil or good you know we we just are what we are um but that doesn't keep it from being fucking horrific <laughs> you know i was definitely fucking horrific something i find interesting about that though is that even in the film it's even though it's horrific that you know we're the 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 food in this scenario um the entity itself the color it's never actually portrayed as like evil, you know, it, it's, it's not, um, it doesn't give you that, that feeling like, Oh God, this is the bad guy. This, this is just something that is, and, and, and it's coming here. It's doing what it does. Like you said, and even the characters who are experiencing it, all they can keep saying about it is, you know, well, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> I find that a little disturbing too, but interesting. Yeah, it's truly awesome, you know, truly awe-inspiring is what it is. It's never never presented as being some malicious entity. It's just, you know, the side effects of its presence are certainly things we can consider horrific and terrible, but it doesn't seem to do those things like maliciously. It it just does the things, you know. It's just doing what it does. Sorry that that's a fucking inconvenience to you guys, but yeah. Yeah, it, it even uh, something that, that hit me upon this viewing is that you might could even look at it as like trying to do something nice. Um, bear with me here. When it like uh, when it reaches out and fuses the mother and the son into one gross John Carpenter's the thing fucking mm -hmm. monster. Yeah. Uh, was it maybe, did it maybe think that that's what they wanted? Maybe. I mean, this thing was just talking to Jack-Jack for a while. Yeah, you know, and it would, it would know that mom was stressed out and had like anxiety about the young son and stuff. And, uh, and after they're fused, the daughter says something like, um, it's like she's trying to, to reabsorb Jack, you know, mm -hmm. and then hell, maybe that's the color thought maybe for the best maybe the color was like oh you just need to be with your mom that's where you went wrong that's when you, when you yeah, left your mom everything just just go back everything's better in non-existence <laughs> right yeah. 
but yeah, no, I mean, who, who's to say? Maybe it was. Yeah. Um, and brilliant phrasing there. So um, if you look at what the, the color is trying to do, or rather what the color did, um, ultimately, is that it, it incorporates nearby life into itself. Like you join it and become one with it. And then you blast off with it to fucking travel the stars and go and uh, absorb people elsewhere. It really doesn't sound all that bad. <laughs> Not really, no. You're like, all right, absorb me, color, take me away, let's go. <laughs> yeah, it beats the hell out of like certain other immortalities that you get in Lovecraft stories, like any of the stories involving... Um, the deep ones, as they are called, the fucking, the fishmen, you know, that worship Dagon. Yeah, and, I really don't want to be a fish person. That sounds kind of terrible. Yeah, that sounds super shitty. Um, I don't want to do that forever. I don't want to do that, like, ever, let alone forever. No. Um, count me out. <laughs> Gonna pass on the fish person. <laughs> right. But the whole, like, uh, become a cool-ass giant pink laser zaps around the fucking multiverse that sounds pretty cool i don't know yeah i'm into it (laughs) um but sort of so that fits like a a traditional occult concept which um which me and my buddy talked about a little while back for the synecdoche new york episode that occult concept of returning to the the perfection of the void where we all came from like everything was nice and perfect and peaceful back when we were all one with the nothing. <laughs> and then when we shattered into this jacked up, stressful, anxiety ridden existence that we call reality, that's when, when things got bad. And if we could just all join that perfect, uh, the unity of the nothing, things would be good again. And it, it does kind of seem like that's what the color out of space is getting at in general. So another level to that whole um the the life feeds on life as above so below commentary that's going down is that uh like cancer fits into that commentary big time you know that's that is what cancer is and what cancer does cancer is you know it, it feeds on us it eats us and uh replicates itself and destroys its host right in one way or another I'm not using like I don't think host is an applicable term for cancer I'm not a medical doctor. But, right. No, I get what but, you're saying, though. Yeah, that that concept uh, fits right into that theme and is, is multi-layered. And I guarantee is all part of what was on paper for, for Richard Stanley. You know, I'm sure that was all part of his script. Yeah, I could see that. It definitely seems like a purposeful filmmaker. So for sure. Back to some of the just sort of like little kooky... Uh, fire elemental thematic stuff that I, I made note of. There's a salamander sitting on the edge of the well in that one shot. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Are you aware that salamanders are, they're considered a, a, a creature of fire, like an elemental, a creature elementally associated with fire? No, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. So at right, so that reminds me again. My notes are kind of a jumbled mess and be all over the place. But um, the salamander at the edge of the well reminds me of of something else that ties into the whole as above, so below theme, which is that um, like everything in occult practice is is balanced, 
even when you might not think a situation is is balanced if you approach it from the right angle if you observe it long enough you you will see the balance in a situation and what struck me uh this time around was all the fire meets water stuff that we see throughout this movie so like one of the very first shots in the movie is lavinia standing there at the edge of the the river or the lake doing her her ritual and the frame is cut perfectly in half diagonally across frame by Mm. the edge of the river and the edge of the river bank and I don't think that's accidental. I guarantee you that Richard Stanley wanted a, a powerful image of Lavinia standing uh, halfway between firmament and not um, as she's performing her ritual. You know, it's kind of like at the edge of the world on a balance uh, kind of thematic theme. And then if you look at the fact that um, how does the color get them? You know, biologically, like we said earlier, well, mm-hmm. it gets them through the water. The fire gets into their wa- their body through the water. So, you know, it's that perfect balance of fire and water that carries this situation to its horrific wow, conclusion. Okay, yeah. So, uh, as far as, like, normally with ritual light and sound, I like to settle on one esoteric or occult idea that I think I see represented in a movie uh, directly or thematically as sort of like just make that my main focus for the episode um you know like with hereditary it was a uh, goetia demon summoning and um stranger things it was the whole montauk time travel mm-hmm. teleportation bullshit whatever but with colorado space uh colorado space to me uh you know it, it's one like occult tying theme is the transformation the the transformative powers of fire but it's so just like thick with references and ties to stuff all over and made by an actual practitioner that i decided to approach this episode a little differently and just sort of like dig into all the different occult elements that that i think i see richard stanley tossing in you know as a and as a seasoned practitioner and just sort of see like maybe what you thought about some of this stuff and see like maybe if you had any experience with with some of the you know maybe not direct occult but more stuff that i would call like esoteric you know so um so we're gonna kick it off like this part of the horror of this story to me is the the Mm. distortion of time have you ever experienced any sort of uh, you know, what you might call uh, temporal strangeness or, or time distortion or anything like that? Or does anybody you know, have, have they experienced anything like that? No, I, I wish I had something I could report on that, but I can't say I've had any firsthand experience or even um, heard any cool, interesting stories to go along with that one. Though as far as the uh, the portrayal of it in the film, I, I think it was done incredibly well, especially at the end. Um, and that conclusion, the way that they portrayed it visually, um, I thought was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. You mean like the sort of glitchy stuff with Ward where he's like stretching as he moves? It's so good. That's such a terrifying idea, though, to lose time like that. Like, um, it was the middle brother, uh, somewhere in the middle of the film, right, that came back to the house and Lavinia's yelling at him for not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He goes, no, you don't understand. Like, 
I went out into the fields and it was daytime and then I blinked and it was nighttime and I couldn't even get home and didn't know where I was. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. So, um, I think you just sort of wrapped up a personal, like my one tiny nitpick of this movie that I'm left with after watching it so many times. So, so I tried to justify this time through, I was like, all right, if, if this movie is about the transformative elements of fire, that means that every character in this movie is going through a transformation, right? Mm. And so right off the top of my head, I'm like, oh yeah, every single main character, I can I see what their transformation is. Uh, and I can see sort of the, the reasoning behind that from a script point of view, from a filmmaker's point of view. But I'm like, hey, what about the middle brother? He kind of just seems like he's here. You know, he's like a little bit of a throwaway character. A little bit. A little, but um, like I tried to pay more close attention this time and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I really can't can't zero in on what I think, uh, how exactly he's being affected by this situation. But I think you just clarified it for me. I think his main like transformative takeaway is that his uh, like temporally in, in terms of time, I think he's the one getting affected the most and now that i know that and i'm looking back i'm like yeah that explains a lot of how generally strange he is and you kind of like you as an audience member and the family within the story they kind of chalk it up to him being a stoner you know yeah and that's just good writing you know that stanley uh not letting something stand just for the fucking state sake of it he he lets it stand but he also makes sure it works in a way that um that doesn't make you think, well, like why doesn't the rest of the family point out how fucking strange and like a non-entity, the one brother is, well, it's like, well, they all just think he's high, you know, and they're just like blaming on him being high. But what we realize is that the guy's grip on time has become untethered and he's really fucking strange because of it. Yeah. And so if like, if the, the son, the, the little kid, Jack is sort of like immediately, enamored with the color he um he makes friends with it he's he's sort of like immediately in his own way is looking forward to becoming one with it well that's that childlike wonder you know that's that's the that's the child's perspective of the world and how things are the kid as far as he's concerned there's you know his friend lives at the bottom of the well and they're they're communicating and the dog's out there with him barking at it because the animal understands like okay there's a presence here that um uh, it's making me uncomfortable. So the dog's reacting the way a dog would react. But I think you're right that the middle brother definitely was the most affected out of all of them. If you think back to when the color first starts um, emerging around them, he's literally sitting at his computer screen just drooling. Like, he's totally zonked out. You know, the parents are together. Um, Lavinia's listening to her music. Jack-Jack's out in the hallway like, holy shit, what the hell's about to happen? The middle brother's just already somehow possessed. Well, he was staring at the computer screen. So it was making its way, I guess, its presence into the atmosphere and then through with electricity and into the computer. Like he was just straight fried while this was happening. And it fit right in perfectly. It's like you said, they're like, oh, well, you know, he's just a pothead. So obviously he sucks and doesn't know what's going on and can't be responsible. Like, no, I think he's just scrambled, guys. Yeah, and that's that's his uh, important place in the story, and that's his arc, you know. Whereas um, I didn't really pick up on it before, but yeah, I think that's that's his place in things. 
That is, that's cool. It's interesting. Thanks for pointing that yeah. out. The opening scene with Lavinia's ritual. Are you familiar with the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram? Not in practice, just from what I've read. So it's not totally unfamiliar to me. I, I kind of get the concept. Gotcha. Okay. So so what we saw her doing on screen was a um, you know, sort of a personalized version of the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, which is sort of typically looked at as like the magical equivalent of tidying up. Mm. You know, you want to, uh, before any greater working, you want to clean up the space by performing the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. A lot of people like to close out all their rituals with it as well. It's like a nice little way to clean things up in preparation for a ritual and then close things up and clean them up at the end, you know, to mm -hmm. leave the space like you found the space kind of, kind of idea. So her, her rituals interrupted, right? Ward shows up and uh, in the middle of her ritual or rather, you know, maybe three quarters of the way through and, and she doesn't finish. Mm. Then, you know, cut to later in the movie when you see that she has an actual copy of the Necronomicon yes. in her bedroom, which the very first time I saw that, I didn't quite get where Richard Stanley was coming from with that because uh, for two reasons. A, the, the copy that she has is it looks exactly like the copy of the Necronomicon that you can get at Books A Million. And mm -hmm. you can order from Amazon and stuff. And it's a, you know, it, it's a fictional book. The guy who wrote it wouldn't wouldn't tell you that it wasn't fiction. It's a it's a work of fiction. It, it was, you know, it's for sale for fun. Right. That stuck out to me too the first time watching because her ritual in the beginning seemed so authentic and linked to other practices. And then you see, you know, <laughs> this Necronomicon book, and I'm like immediately my brain goes towards necronomicon where we in the evil dead now like what are you doing <laughs> right um so the necronomicon you know it, it is a fictional book it, it is not a real magic uh occult tome whatsoever lovecraft made it up mm -hmm. and he, he used it in a lot of his stories and then a lot of his fellow weird fiction homies would use it in their stories you know and then sam Raimi put it in the evil dead <clears throat> but uh, seeing that it was the Books A Million copy, I was like, huh, that's a bit of an interesting choice. And then just the fact that she would that she would have one. I'm like, why the fuck would Lavinia have a copy of the Necronomicon? It's, you know, it's one of the most deadly books in existence. It's kept under lock and key at the Miskatonic University's rare book library or whatever, you know, all, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But so if you you know, but that's in 1935. All those ideas that I'm spouting out and, and all that fan backstory for me, mm -hmm. like that shit is from Lovecraft was still alive, you know? <clears throat> so if you take that, uh, that same world and fast forward it to 2020, well, obviously books are not kept under lock and key anymore. You, you can't no. keep books hidden anymore. Because all it takes is a quick scan and they're on Pirate Bay and they're fucking everywhere. Mm -hmm. So if you take Lovecraft's setting, you know, the way that things work in his his stories. And if you trans, if you fast forward that 80 years, the only way that you're still left 
with a, a functioning planet Earth, the only way we, we're not all already dead is because somehow all this time no one has got their hands on one of these books and done something stupid like <laughs> Lavinia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you got to put that in a realistic context. So, like, in the real world, you, you can't fucking keep books hidden. The books are everywhere. You, you can find them. But what you can do is alter a book. So, like, a, a crafty person who is trying to do the best thing for planet Earth they could do would take the Necronomicon that was locked up in the Miskatonic University rare book library and they would alter it. They would, they would change passages here and there. They would edit it and fuck with it in a way that future people wouldn't be able to use it properly as a safety okay. precaution. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's like the only way that we would last this long is if the, that copy of the book isn't the real copy, you know? And that makes sense to me a hundred percent that she has the books a million copy because you know like she thinks it's the necronomicon but it's bullshit it's mm-hmm. something you can get at books a million but because this this is a lovecraft story and because this takes place you know in, in his world the copy that you can get at the books a million in this world has some of some trace elements of the actual fucking necronomicon in it and um so my idea what I think happened before the movie started, I think that Lavinia was thumbing through her Necronomicon and she found like um, the ritual to summon and bind this like cosmic fire creature that would burn sickness from your body. Right. Cause she even okay. says something like that in her, her opening ritual. She's like, she burns that lock of hair and she's like, yes, yeah, she wants burn to burn the cancer from mm-hmm. her. Whatever. Right. Which you know, she would have that idea put into her head, like that would be part of her mental vocabulary because we all grow up with modern science, which is chemo and radiation, right? And radiation mm-hmm. literally burn the fucking metastasized cells out of your body and it helped kill you, kill your cancer. So like that mental vocabulary was already in her. And then when she saw in, in her kooky magic book that you could summon this creature from out of space made out of fire that could, uh, burn away your sicknesses she was like oh yeah you know that makes sense that sounds like radiation therapy that that that'd probably work and so in a desperate attempt to save her mom's life she was out there on the edge of the river or whatever trying to summon the color um and like i said typically you want to open any big ritual with a lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram uh, called the lbrp for short um and you want to close with the lbrp so if that's what happened, if my fucking stupid theory is, is what happened, Ward showed up and interrupted her closing LBRP, which is what would have fully closed that circle up and made it a complete, fully functioning, safe ritual. Mm-hmm. She didn't get to do that because he interrupted her. So perhaps what she did she simply summoned the damn thing, but didn't wasn't able to close her circle to keep it from harming, you know, her and others and doing what it wanted to do instead of just doing what she wanted it to do. Right. I didn't even think of it that way. But yeah, that definitely works. And now it's just here doing what it knows how to do rather than what it was, you know, initially brought there to do. 
Right. Yeah. And then back to, you know, who knows, maybe, um, maybe when it fused mom and son, maybe it also cured her cancer. It may have, (laughs) it may have. I mean, technically too, if you think about it, one of the things I noticed when she was doing the ritual that stood out to me was that, and correct me if I'm wrong, if it's supposed to be, you know, different or if you can do it this way, but it seemed like she was asking a lot of one ritual. Like, you know, first she's asking, you know, burn away any trace of cancer from my mother. And then she asks for something else. And then she says, and most of all, get me out of here or get me away from here or whatever it is. That seemed a little odd to me. So I'm like, like, um, I didn't think that, again, not that I, I practice, but I just figured if you're doing a ritual and you wanted to focus on something, you would probably have like one primary focus. So she's doing this. Yeah, keep it kind of simple. So she's doing this uh, summoning and she's bringing this entity here. So not only she didn't get to close her circle, so there's no safety with it. You're not giving clear directive. You're asking way too much, but she kind of got what she asked for. <laughs> she got taken away. Exactly. And see, I, I forget that she says that. But when you, when you were like, you know, take me away, I was like, oh, yeah, well, he, it did that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it did what you asked. There's no trace of cancer in your mom and you got taken away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so that, uh, the idea that, that we, that the story starts after seeing like the more important parts of her, her ritual, uh, that idea got into my head the last time I watched it. So I kept that in mind this time. And there's, the part where, so like Ward comes and interrupts Lavinia's ritual and then she's like, yep, yeah, thanks stranger or whatever. And she uh, moodily jumps on her horse and rides back to their house. And then when she runs into her brother, she's like, yeah, some guy was poking around or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It, it, anyway, like one of the first things that he says to her is, did you manage to curse us all? <laughs> and she gives this weird look in her eye like well um i fucking hope not but i'm not sure yeah yeah and i I take that to mean like with all that other stuff in mind i'm like okay she did she didn't just go out there to do uh an lbrp like she went out there to do something much bigger and her brother knew about it like um you know he was aware that she was going out there to perform a ritual to hopefully help their mom. Mm -hmm. And uh, he might even have known that it some uh, vaguely involved uh, the summoning of some greater entity or something. I mean, there's some fucking reason that he was like, did you curse us all? You know, (laughs) like that's not just an offhand remark. Like he was aware that she went out there to do some big shit. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and she really gives him a look like, I'm not sure. I really hope not. Uh, so I feel like that kind of, I don't know, that reinforces my goofy idea that, that she was out there performing a summoning and, um, and to make the movie even more interesting, we, we don't see that, uh, you know, cause if we saw the whole thing, it would be a bit ham fisted and over the top. Uh, and there wouldn't be as many cool questions to ask and to think about. Yeah. Oh, definitely. The way that it's presented to us definitely leaves a lot to the imagination, allowing, you know, those people like us to come to conclusions like that, which I think your theory fits really well. Um, Next time I go into it, I'm going to try and watch it with that in mind. 
and see if it changes the experience for me at all because that it makes sense uh yeah okay so um those i think that's the meat of all my fucking weird uh you know occult kooky ideas that, that i wanted to dig into um and now you know because i did this completely out of order there's a couple of um barely related and not really kooky ideas at all that i just wanted to to bring up because i okay. thought i saw them first off is uh it, it didn't occur to me at all during my first viewings of this movie just what a complete fucking numb nuts that sheriff guy is when he shows up <laughs> like he's okay. a fucking idiot he he comes in um like we're you know nearly two hours deep in a, a very like psychologically layered you know an intellectual horror story with characters who are treating this thing who are thinking this thing through they're not like acting first and thinking second like all these characters are really pondering first um and then sheriff character comes in and he's very much not a thinker he he's an mm -hmm. act first uh, maybe think later kind of guy and so he fucking shows up at their house and blows away mom and Jack mm -hmm. just fucking annihilates him with a shotgun. That's like his way of dealing with this situation. Like, granted, mom and Jack were super fucking creepy and threatening at that moment. But still, the guy came in and his solution was a shotgun. Well, he definitely went gung-ho into bringing in the shotgun. But wasn't it actually um, Nick Cage that killed? Well, Nick Cage definitely blew the little boy's head. Yeah. Nick Cage blew the little boy's head off for sure. They kind of make it, so when the scene happens, they kind of make it look like the sheriff had blown off the wife's head, but I think when they pan back to the other characters, it's actually Nick Cage standing there with the shotgun, like he walked in and blew her head off. And then he kind of laughs and goes like, that's not my family, and walks away. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, no, you're, you're right. It's not, it's not the cop that blows away mom and Jack. But I will agree with you that the cop is kind of a derpy throwaway, not thinker character because all this crazy shit is going on. Like think about what he just saw in that attic. And his next response is like, well, we got to go save the guy living out in the middle of the woods. I'm sorry, but right now, like, fuck that guy. You got to get out of here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so and in between those those two parts, so uh um Nick Cage, your dad blows away mom and the son, and then they like stumble downstairs and out to the front porch where the color is like pouring out of the well in those gnarly, like troll tentacly things. And then Nick Cage raises his shotgun like he's gonna shoot the color, I guess, but it's also yes. vaguely in the direction of Lavinia and Ward. And that's when Sheriff just fucking blows Nick Cage away. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't even hesitate. It's like, dude, what? Like, How could you even have been sure that he was pointed at them? Like, you could have shouted his name. You could have moved him out of the way. You could have tackled the guy. Your immediate response was to blow a hole right through his torso. Like, damn, dude. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so uh, you know, Cop didn't, he wasn't the the scumbag in the attic that uh that i thought he was for a second there but he's definitely a fucking trigger happy scumbag typical cop on the front porch and so richard stanley's a south african guy and uh, i don't know if you're aware of this or not but south africans particularly of a certain age um if, if you grew up 
during uh, the worst parts of apartheid, which he did, you are not the kind of person who puts a lot of faith in police. Okay. Uh, South Africans typically, like, unless you too are a white racist South mm-hmm. African, <laughs> you probably don't have many nice things to say about the cops. And I feel like Richard Stanley this sheriff character was him getting a chance to be like, yeah, look how fucking derpy cops are. That would explain. Okay. So I was going to say the one nitpicky thing I had with this movie was that the cop seemed like such a throwaway character. And when they're leaving the, the shack out in the woods, Tommy, Tommy Chunk's shack out in the woods, uh, he gets like two feet out the door and this tree branch just swoops his ass up and crunches him to death. And at first I'm like, well, why was this even necessary? But coming from that perspective where, you know, the director has a certain thing he wants to say about cop, this was just his opportunity to be like, fuck that cop. So, you know what? I'll allow it. That's cool. <laughs> That's how I feel about it anyway. And even down to like the fact that the his kill is, you know, it didn't have to be that vicious or graphic. Um, you know, he could have just been snatched up into the darkness and, and we call it a day and mm-hmm. Ward could have kept on running. He really pauses to show that cop viciously get a tree limb jammed in his face. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I don't know. That kind of feels like he's <laughs> making a little statement about the cops. No, I'll definitely agree with you there because that was the one like incident in the film. And this is going to sound weird because all the gruesome things that happen to all the other um, characters, the family, like, yeah, a bunch of fucked up shit happens to them. But it still, again, didn't seem like it was malicious. This seemed malicious. This was definitely malicious. Like, that tree was like, fuck this guy in particular. <laughs> yeah, because here's the thing. Like, um, you know, and I'm just now thinking of, of this for the first time. But uh, this time through, it really struck me. When Ward comes out of the the bomb shelter basement at the end, all covered in ash and, and looking around at the desolation. And you're like, well, damn, he got lucky, you know? Um but he was not biologically tied with the color. He never drank the water. No, he was the one trying to warn everybody. Nope. Right. Yeah. And the light never like got him. He was never in direct radiance of the light or any of the like static fuzz or anything. Like he always was away from that stuff. Um, but so was the cop. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, te- technically, the cop c- could have made it out of there. In 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 the original story, the the cop or the guys that go to check out, you know, the house, they don't die. <laughs> so yeah, no, that was that was deliberate as hell. Yeah, yeah, the more I'm talking about it now, I'm like, yeah, that was him saying fuck cops for sure. <laughs> Full support. I appreciate that more. Even I, I yeah, I no, I I redact my statement of that being a nitpicky moment. I'm into it. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. So here's a a couple of just questions for you is i'm curious about your opinions do you think do you think that that was the the colors world that ward saw for a second that um that bizarre planet with with the giant stone idol and the red sun and everything do you think that was the world that the color came from yeah i think so um i forget who said it in the film but somebody makes a comment about how the you know the color of the entity it's just here doing what it does on its own planet so 
at that point, I think you were just getting shown the reflection of like, okay, well, that's, this is where it comes from. And this is kind of, not that we know what the fuck is going on, um, on that planet. Exactly. But yeah, I think that was definitely a glimpse of where it comes from. And, and do you think, um, do you think that was its home world or do you think that was just the last place that it came from? Ah, that's a good question. Well, if you think about it, so the visions that we saw, like you said, it was that symbol on top of the mountain and there was kind of like all these tentacles and craziness happening. If that was the last world that it came from and it potentially does the same thing everywhere it goes, then I don't, I don't think that would be the last place it came from and did any kind of destruction because it doesn't look like the way it left Earth unless... Uh. So you would have to know, you would have to know like if this left some sort of remnants of itself and that like you know a thousand years from now earth is going to be totally enveloped by tentacle arms and things like that but the way that it left from what we see is just you know a pit of dust where everything that it touched has been drained of life and dead um whereas what we're seeing where it comes from is is a totally different look so I want to say that was maybe the home world. Yeah, good point. I, I'm going to have to agree with you. That would that would only be if we knew for sure, like, it goes to different places and does the same thing everywhere it goes. So if you were to make that assumption from what it did on planet Earth, then, yeah, I would say that was the home world. Right, <clears throat> right. Um, there's some stuff. Uh, so there's a, a tabletop role-playing game based on Lovecraft's stuff called Call of Cthulhu. Okay. And um, in in the like, you know, now 35 years worth of written material for the Call of Cthulhu. So they, they have to do like uh, for game purposes, they do what D&D does where D&D takes like a Cyclops and a dragon and a Minotaur and they turn it into stats for you to use uh, in a pen and paper game. Right. Um, so the Call of Cthulhu game has turned a lot of these entities into paper stats for you using your games. And they've like fleshed out details beyond what Lovecraft gave us in his stories. And the, the idea that they run with in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is that the color out of space is, um, like that, that is its gestation process. So like, uh, the meteorite is kind of like, um, an egg or a sperm, or I don't know how you really want to look at it. A, a spore really more, more than an egg or a sperm. And, uh, and the spore comes down lands and it gathers energy from local energy sources, depletes them, powers up and blasts off into the sky to make its own babies and drop them on other worlds. Um, okay. that's, that's what the fucking this game say but you know lovecraft never said any of that so that's all left to the imagination it's open to interpretation yeah and that makes it scarier um because the the story and the the movie both brilliantly end with that idea of um you know it's called they call it the blasted heath that Mm -hmm. area that's left uh it's just that nuclear fucking (laughs) scorched part out in the arkham hills and then they flood it and turn it into a basin mm-hmm. for drinking water for the area. And uh, the narrator is all like, you know, I hope the waters are deep, but I'll never drink them no matter what. And, mm-hmm. and you're just left with, oof, what's under that? 
water down at the bottom of this man-made lake that they've made for people to drink out of. Yeah, and how long until it starts seeping into the water above it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and and that's a brilliant way to to leave that story and and to bring home the the horror of it, you know, and the mystery of it. And I uh, hands down got to give it to that guy, the guy that plays Ward in this movie. And I have not yet made note of that guy's name. But his delivery of that opening monologue and especially the closing monologue is oh, yeah. like the finest performance of Lovecraftian dialogue. Not that it's dialogue, but, um, you know, of Lovecraftian prose in any film I've ever seen, because that shit is hard to say in a way that carries the weight that it should carry. Um and frequently what happens in these like Lovecraftian adaptations, these film adaptations is that actors who aren't necessarily like the most wonderful actors or who don't necessarily really understand the massive concepts behind the stories, they're looked at to be able to say this stuff in a way that carries the horror. And it just doesn't, you know, cause they don't, they don't, they don't get the meat of it, you know, to know how to present it. But this guy fucking does like he gets it and he nails that closing thing where he's just like, you know, I hope that's it, but I'm pretty sure it's not. And I'm pretty sure we're all fucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, that, that just deadpan of acceptance. Like I know it's down there. I know what could happen. Ain't shit. I can do about it. This is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so I took in, in previous viewings, I look at the way that um the way that they've subtly altered his face in that closing monologue. I've always assumed that like he just looks kind of runt now cuz he got radiated, mm. you know? And probably he's he's probably not well and he will probably die of cancer in a few years or something. Okay. But uh this time around when I watched it, I was like, maybe it's just the passage of time. That's how I looked at it. Okay. Yeah. So it's just like, it's been 20 years. Or something. Yeah. Like definitely it took time for them to, you know, fill all that area in and build the, the, you know, whatever. Um, I think that was just the passage of time. And then the look in his face of just, he's got that knowledge that everybody else is choosing to ignore or doesn't know about or whatever it is. So now he's older and I don't know if wiser is the word I want to use, more scorned, uh, or not scorned, but, um, you know, uh, more of a broken man, because he's got some understanding now that he didn't have before. He's he's seen some shit. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's like smoking cigarettes now, because fuck it. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was all about, you know, I, I analyze water, and, you know, he seemed like kind of a environmental person, and, you know, maybe was... I would say uh, a health-focused person, maybe, based on the attributes. Now he's like, nope, nope, I'm basically ready to walk into Judgment Day. Fuck everything. <laughs> so, now has come the time to rate this thing, Kim. Uh, here on Ritual Light and Sound, we do a skull rating, just, you know, for how... Just rating it as a film. Uh, we do 1 to 10 skulls, and then I do a Hand of Glory scale for its occult accuracy um but so we'll start off with the with the skull scale from one to ten skulls just for uh for a movie you know for how much you enjoyed this thing as a film how many skulls would you give the color out of space you know i was gonna say nine at first but the more i watch it and the more that i 
after discussing it further with you, I'm giving it a 10. I fucking enjoy this movie. I will definitely rewatch it many more times, and I think I'm always going to find value in it. That's a 10 for me. Excellent. Oh, good to hear. Cool. I, I got to agree. Um, it's just flat out one of the best movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, and I um, every time I see it, it just fucking knocks me out. Everything about it, the, the cinematography is some of the most gorgeous cinematography I've ever seen. So beautiful. So fucking beautiful. Yeah, and I keep meaning to look up the cinematographer's name, and I haven't yet. But, I mean, there are shots in it that are just unlike anything I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Just really gorgeous landscape shots. And, and I wonder what the hell camera they used. But, um, but yeah, everything about it is just, uh, just a perfect movie for me. you know. And I'm sure part of that is as I'm a big lovecraft sucker uh <laughs> and perhaps i could find something to make this movie about you know if i wasn't such a big fan but it's it's just such a great fucking movie to me and and i'm gonna gotta give it a 10 as well so awesome. 10 skulls for me um now we're gonna do the hand of glory thing a little differently so because because i don't have like one concept to say you know, how accurate was the portrayal of demon summoning in this? Mm. Um, because we're kind of just looking at things as a whole. Um, I'm more going to say like, like how occulty did this movie seem to you on a scale from one to 10 hands of glory? We're, we're going to do it like mm. that. How occulty? Wow. It's an so interesting for, like, way to from look at your it. experience and knowledge of practices and, and, uh, and ideas like, um, you know, how much of of real world practice and, and ideology do you think you saw on the screen in this movie? One to ten hands of glory. As far as it being accurate to what can... So maybe not with accurate of it, what could actually happen to my knowledge, but I think as, way, as far as it was portrayed and knowing that the creators behind the film are also practitioners in their own right, um, I would want to give this a ten as well for that. Like it's, it's heavily embedded. It's there. I want to say and hope that the things portrayed were accurate to what they know, or at least wanted to depict. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause uh, the last episode I was like, Oh shit, we have a perfect score for Synecdoche, New York, a 10, 10, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a 10 as well. You know, <laughs> I got it. Um, it's uh, but for, sort of for different reasons, like, um, Synecdoche, while I am certain that Charlie Kaufman was aware of the concepts that we ran our mouths about in that episode and that he set out to portray those concepts on the screen, on the flip side, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that like Kaufman is um, a practitioner of any kind or if he even mm. thinks about things necessarily in those terms. Um but I, I know for a fact that Richard Stanley is a practitioner. So when I'm looking at the screen and I'm seeing all this stuff that <laughs> that I would want to believe is a cult, even if I didn't know that about him. Right. Um, the fact that I know that he's a, a deep practitioner, I'm like, oh, OK. So every little thing that I think I'm seeing, I am seeing. You right, know? right. It's, it's all placed uh, perfectly and um, and purposefully definitely agree cool um right on so uh thank you very much for joining me kim uh this is the point where if you want to you know give a shout out or plug your twitter handle or anything you might have 
in the works, go for it. If not, we'll just call it a night. I mean, if you're interested in anything that I have to say about life or films, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Serling. I do shout out films on Sundays that I think deserve more love for various reasons. They'll probably be primarily horror, but sometimes I'll throw in uh, something just in the genre or in any genre. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. I'm, I'm just a fan. I love talking movies and uh, yeah happy to do it anytime it was a pleasure to talk to you about this one excellent thank you again your film recommendation recommendations are always spot on like we have really similar taste thank you you are most welcome uh right so until we speak again kim see you next time
think that all vital periods of the drama and of literature are periods of great violence and that all of our great plays and novels are violent. And I don't like them when, when they are poor novels or when they are not works of art, they become uh, shoddy and seem to be, uh, seem to be pandering. Yes, but it's usually wicked, you know. Virtue triumphs. Whereas in the horror comics, it doesn't. Oh, it doesn't it? I don't think so. No. Well, it doesn't in Edgar Allan Poe either, you know. We're Racerhead, David Lynch, and Fred Elms, who is the lighting cameraman in the same picture. And where, where are we right now? We're down in the tanks right now. In the tanks? Yeah. It's uh, one of the locations. Yeah, we shot an early scene of uh, Henry just walking through here. We had a, lo a longer scene uh, rigged up, and if you look down here, you can see uh, what remains of a, of a cat we had down here. Was this here when you when you uh, got here? No, I brought brought this down here. Oh. <laughs> this I got from a veterinarian. It just died, and um, so. Uh, he let me, you know, work with it, and it wasn't uh, like this, but when we, got, when we were working with it, um, it went into the water there, and there's a lot of tar in there, and it got covered with tar and uh, preserved itself. That was five years ago hmm. that that was there. But that never got into the film. No, that cat's not in the film, but Henry walks right from over there through through here and comes right to here so in a sense it's right just below the shot uh, that's in the film is this cat uh -huh. 